Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to see familiar faces. Um, I think I'll dedicate the talk tonight to um, everyone's father. (laughs) So um, maybe some of you even remember your father or got to know your father. Or maybe some of you don't know who your father is either. And um, maybe you have a grandfather that you can contemplate. Some of you have been um, in class with me when our meditation class lands on Father's Day. Uh, A couple of years in a row it did, and um, one of the exercises that we did is, um, and if I remember this, because I didn't know I was going to talk about this until now, but if I remember this we would have done this together, which is to... um, just bring your father into your heart with your breath in the practice. And, um, and once you can get settled there, to then remember your father um, or imagine your father um, when he was your age. And, and to watch all these stories and emotions and images come up that you might have. Uh, images and stories that might have sentimentality or might open your heart or might close your heart also. And then once you can feel that, um, after 15 or 20 minutes maybe, to then imagine your father when he was 10 and then when he was 5 and then uh, when he was born. And it's such an interesting practice because I think for so many of us we confuse our um, chronic emotions around our father with our father, with who the man is inside of that category. And so we'll dedicate our our practice to our fathers.
I just came home from Colorado and I was there with my son and uh, we were in the mountains on Father's Day in the morning. And he woke up and he just thought it was the coolest thing that it was solstice and Father's Day <laughs> at the same time. And, uh, and then he made a joke, which is, it's going to be a really long day. <laughs> and he thought it was really interesting that Mother's Day is a shorter day. Yeah. But Father's Day is really longer. But then as the day went on, he thought about this more. And he realized that Mother's Day has a longer night. So if you were going to have a party, then it would be better to be the mom. And this went on all day, you know, back and forth, which is better, which isn't better. So what I'd like to do, because I feel like we're sort of wrapping up a semester, we're about to go on summer break, and so this is really our second last class, maybe even our last class, because um, next week, for those of you who don't know, um, instead of having the meditation and Dharma talk like we have each week, uh, our friend, who many of you know, Velcro Ripper, is going to come for the class and show his new film, parts of his new film, Fierce Light, and talk a little bit. Uh, we can all talk a little bit together about uh, the themes in that film, which is something that we talk about, I think, every week. Um, but what I'd like to talk a little bit about is um, how to establish a meditation practice in your life that's consistent. And when you're practicing, to actually practice. Because you can sit, maybe you've done this before, you can actually sit a whole retreat and not actually practice. So some guidelines for how to practice and then maybe from that, um, some reasons about why we practice. Um, I just thought of something off topic, and so I'll just say it. Um, when I went to university, the, my first year of university was at UBC in Vancouver. And um, so I was having a lot of trouble with my father at that time. So when I applied to the university and asked you your parents' names, I don't know, for emergency or whatever, I said that my dad was Alan's, Alan Ginsberg. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I kept a picture of him in my room. And for like two years, I just pretended that I was Alan Ginsberg's son. <laughs> I think I should tell my father about this. <laughs> Anyways, I thought of that, partly because it's Father's Day and partly because I'm going to read a poem and... Uh, written by Philip Whalen, and Allen Ginsberg took the photograph of him, mm -hmm. which is what drew me to the, the book originally. Uh, some of you may not know who Philip Whalen is, and I highly suggest finding out who he is. Um, he was a very significant influence on a lot of the beat poets, um, but never really joined, and um, was also a fabulous um, Zen teacher. The title of this poem is called Further Notice. I can't live in this world, and I refuse to kill myself, or let you kill me. The dill plant lives, the airplane, 
my alarm clock, this ink, I won't go away. I shall be myself, free, a genius, an embarrassment, like the Indian, the buffalo, like Yellowstone National Park. One more time. I can't live in this world, and I refuse to kill myself, or let you kill me. The dill plant lives, the airplane, my alarm clock, this ink, I won't go away. I shall be myself, free, a genius, an embarrassment, like the Indian, the buffalo, like Yellowstone National Park. I found out recently that someone I know had a young person in their family who took his own life. And um, you know how sad that is when you, when you hear a story like that. And how it also might touch in you, might touch in you, um, times in your own life where you've been overwhelmed. Um, where we become so identified with our thoughts and our vision and our perspective that we can't separate uh, the happening of life from the way we contract around it. And this poem touches that, you know, I can't live in this world, but he says, and I refuse to kill myself. And I refuse to kill myself or let you kill me. Or let you kill me. And you can imagine that he is speaking to so many facets of life. The way that the momentum of our culture can shut down our creativity. The way that maybe we had um, parents that had ideas for us. And who had parents who had ideas for them. Even just social ideas about how to do your life. And then he switches gears and says, um, the dill plant lives. There's the dill plant. Does anybody have one growing right now? Yeah. There's the dill plant, dilling. <laughs> And the dill plant is not wondering if she'll be a good dill plant for you. The dill plant is not trying to take her own life. And so when you take your own life, which you can do without actually literally taking your own life, some of us do this, yeah. you get a self-image that pulls you down and in. Uh, it becomes depression or you know, whatever. And um, in a way, we've shot down to life. But meanwhile, there's the dill plant, the airplane, the streetcar, this car, person breathing beside you, people speaking, the ink, the poem, Philip Whalen.
The bird. I was waiting for the bird. (laughs) And then he turns again. I shall be myself, free, a genius, an embarrassment. Can you allow yourself to be an embarrassment? So, how this relates to our practice is that you are Yellowstone National Park. You have in you the trees and the plants and weather patterns and emotions and feelings and a kind of eccentricity and uniqueness that's unrepeatable. And last week, for those most of you who were here last week, we ended with someone asking a question about how this practice and psychotherapy are related to each other. And my stock answer came up, but I didn't say it because usually I'm asked that question in groups of therapists. And actually there's quite a lot of therapists in here. But um, I, I responded by saying that actually in a way they're attempting to do the same thing. It should, which is to wake us up through our ability to open up to who and what we are, to return us to our secure ground, to our base, to pull us out of the control tower that's deciding everything, that's making meaning of everything. So in the meditation practice, what we're trying to do is to learn how to be able to settle and then to open. To open to how things are, to not close your eyes when you're meditating to not go inside, but also to not move your eyes around and to not go outside. To let sounds move through, but not to chase after them. To let sensations show up in the body and to open to the way that they appear and disappear without fixing them and without over-identifying with them. The dill plant is not saying my pot, my soil, my salad, my salmon. Yellowstone National Park does not exist. Yellowstone National Park is a name we've given to this territory. But when Yellowstone National Park is entered, when in the same way that depression is entered or anxiety is entered, it's no longer anxiety. It's just what's actually happening in experience, moment to moment to moment to moment. So one of the suggestions I have for developing a practice is for you to get a cushion and make the investment and put it in a place in your home where it doesn't move. Let your cat sleep on it. For those of you who have kids, let your kids see it. Let your kids see that you have a cushion set up. And to sit every day for a period of time, I recommend 30 minutes. If that's not possible, 20 minutes is okay too. And to sit every day without holidays. And when you go to sit on your setup, to have a place that's free of laundry, and um, dust balls 
No. Okay. Not free of dust falls. You can open the window if, no, it, if you're warm. Okay. Um, and to have a timer that you can set up where you can't see it. So to have a timer set up maybe behind you. If you buy um, these new fancy timers from like Snowline, they have beautiful gongs, which apparently you can also download now. I don't know how any of this stuff works, but apparently you can download these um, nice gongs. And uh, time the practice for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Traditionally, um, you can use incense. Japanese incense burns for a period of time, usually an hour. So you just break the incense in half, and that's half an hour. And you can keep your gaze fixed on the coal as it's burning. Um, the timer is so important because the timer is the container that's going to hold you in the practice. Some days the practice will go fast, some days so slow. You'll wonder, oh, I forgot, to, did I set the timer? I don't know if I set the timer. What if I sit 32 minutes? Oh my God. You know? So it's sort of developing a relationship with time where you can be time. So time is not something happening to you or that you're happening in, but that you're time. And in doing so, the time holds us so that whatever shows up, whether it's calmness or agitation, anger or um, pain, that we learn how to open to what's happening without going for our favorite reactive pattern. And um, to focus as we're sitting, not so much on the content of what's showing up, but just on the arising and passing away of phenomenon. Some of you are working with the breath. Some of you are working with sound. You can choose either one. Some of you are working with both. And to stay with this practice every day until we start again in September. And to also know that there are so many other people who are doing this practice too. That I'm there with you when you're sitting. And if you're having a day where maybe it's so hard to stay there until the bell or maybe you don't download that sound, maybe it's a bird or something. Um, but to know that I'm there also, behind your sitting, and I'll be sitting too. And what you've experienced probably, I've also experienced that. Sometimes that helps people. Sometimes it also drives them crazy. Oh my God, I can't get his instructions out of my mind. Like how to shut off, turn Michael down a little bit. so that you can become Yellowstone National Park. We're in Yellowstone National Park. It has no borders. The streetcar is driving through Yellowstone National Park. Your sadness is in Yellowstone National Park. Everything is contained by everything else. Because if you look at the background of any one thing, you find everything. If I say, what's your background, you'll say, oh, you know, 
I'm Catholic and I was born in Saskatchewan and you know whatever your story is but what's your background your background includes every river the buffalo the Indian so that you can be free and also an embarrassment Allen Ginsberg was my dad <laughs> and your father and all of your teachers are also always there in the background all of your teachers not just the ones that sit on cushions but like the person with the garden plot beside you who gives you advice that's right every tomato all that dill sitting up the road and no frills just sitting there under fluorescent lights right now is also your body so we practice so we can open to the complexity of this kind of intimacy so that you can't have a free conscience so that you realize that you have an effect in this matrix of life in every moment in how you act in body, speech, and mind. So that this practice becomes a kind of devotional practice. Because solitude without devotion is kind of hollow. It's a retreat. Some of you are coming on retreat in another day. We're going on retreat Penetang machine silent retreat for till Sunday and um, you know sometimes when people are new to retreat people around them will say how can you be retreating aren't you turning away from the world but those of you who go on retreat you know that when you retreat it's not a retreat actually it's actually a, a being tuned or attuning to ourselves and the world and then you come back here and the streetcar is not a distraction this is how life happens at this address and this is also Yellowstone National Park does this make sense? Are we together? We don't have to be together, but is there anything anybody wants to say, comment on? Because when you can't be in Yellowstone National Park, you're shut down. And you're not in touch with what sparks you. And what sparks most of us is our feeling of being alive. And that feeling manifests for all of you in a different way. And so when you take your own life, when you take your own life, you're shutting down what might happen in three years. You don't know how you're going to need, be needed in two years. You don't know how you're going to be needed in five years. So for those of you that are caught up in addictions and habits and stories 
and maybe anger that are shutting your life down, that are putting out the spark, or creating illusory or delusory sparks, not the real spark. It's time to sit down for a while and learn how to work with the habit energies that um, are so exhausting so that we don't sleep because this is Yellowstone National Park. Haven't you always wanted to come here? Yeah? No? Roni, did you have your hand up? I was going to ask if you could talk a little bit more about devotion and solitude and the connection there. Yeah, what I mean by that is is um, what's called bhakti, which is, um, or in you know Mahayana Buddhism, which is really the path of the bodhisattva. When we chanted the Heart Sutra, bodhisattvas take refuge in the heart wisdom. What does that mean? And in a way, what we're saying is that. Um, this becomes a devotional practice because we begin to see that our practice benefits others, other sentient beings. And let's not, I mean, the traditional way of saying sentient beings, which is like anything that has sense organs, but actually our practice also benefits architecture and city planning. Our architecture, our floors, our mirrors, our lights, our electricity, Darlington, is served by our practice. So that our motivation for practice is not just about my personal benefit, but it includes other people. It's kind of like, you know, when you drive on a country road, you know, the you're driving on the gravel, it's bumpy. Often, you know, where I spend a lot of time in the summer, there's actually no roads. No, It's an unorganized township, so there's no road signs because they have no money, right? So you kind of have to know where you're going. And it's not exactly the best path when other people come to visit because they're lost. And some of us, we do our yoga practice like this. It's like, you know, we don't have a teacher. We just, like, we read a few books, you know, and, and we don't practice in community because we're so independent and postmodern. And so we, um, we just do this practice to kind of get somewhere. But it's so nice when you hear, oh, actually, you could make a left turn over there. And there's just a straight cut over to the west. And then eventually you start getting road maps, like you get maybe um, those white lines that are dotted that go up the road. So, you know. People don't get stuck behind you. They can pass you. And then eventually, when cities get um, in, in Boulder, they have really great carpool lanes with the big diamonds. It's like the diamond-studded highway. Actually, in Boulder, I'm sure one day there will be diamonds on the road uh, with white people driving up and down. <laughs> Did I record that? And um, white Buddhists in Subarus. And... Um, so you want your practice to be like the diamond lane because it goes so much better when you include other people. 
It's faster. And the diamond lane is like, what, four or more, right? Or three or more? So like, can your practice include three or more? Can your practice include your lover, your father? So it's not just about me getting somewhere. And so in solitude, what tends to happen is that if we go into solitude to retreat and get away from things, we shut down the possible intimacy that solitude offers. So as we start to come into ourselves, which on the outside might look like a retreat, we start to open up to ourselves and we realize that this very self that I think is so privileged in mine is actually made mostly of non-self elements. What has made Michael is mostly non-Michael thing. I don't even know what here is, I don't even know what a Michael particle is. So, um, that's what we mean by devotion. Diamond Lane practice. So, are there any questions, comments? Um, I, I'm expecting that you're going to start practicing until September. So please ask questions if there's something that's worrying you or you're confused about. How is your practice going? I said something about this in the, when I was guiding the meditation earlier, but the first part of the practice of listening, are you focusing mostly on listening or breathing? I think both. Okay. I'm just going to talk about one of them. So let's say it's breathing. Okay. So inhaling and exhaling, and then you'll notice, you might not be the only one, that you get distracted this happen for anybody? <laughs> okay. So, there's an identification with a thought. So, when you notice that you're entangled in a story or a thought, a w like a word thought or a picture thought, images, um, you come back to the object of meditation, which is the breath, but with no judgment whatsoever. It's so gentle. And the coming back in Sanskrit is called smriti, which in Pali is sati, which is what in English gets translated as mindfulness. But actually the verb in Sanskrit means to remember. So it actually means to remember the object of meditation. So you don't judge the practice by like how much thinking you stop doing, but rather whether you can come back or not. That's how you discern if the practice is working. And like I said earlier, when we start this practice for the first few years probably, your, your ability to come back, it's, it lags, you know? So you don't usually notice a story until you're almost done. 
right? Or until you're on the next one, you go, oh, I was just having this other story, you know? And then you come back. But over time, you can catch the middle of the story. Oh, this is not feeling the breath. This is storytelling here. And then eventually it becomes so subtle that there's so much connection with the breathing. You can even watch your the volitional action behind the thought. Like, oh, I'm going to have a thought. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for, is that process. And that's the skill, just like learning to play piano or learning a second language. We're, we're training the mind in a way. But the training is a training of renunciation, not of like turning the mind into um, some sharp something, I don't know. It's just letting thoughts come and go, but not identifying with them. So I hear in your question a little bit is like, am I doing this right? You know, And just to know that you're going to fail. Yeah. But because there's the failure, in other words, because you can't stay with the object, you start to see what needs attention. You start to see where you identify and how you identify with feelings and sensations and so on. So that's so important just to be able to very gently come back to the object of meditation. So it's like, oh, come back again. And um, without too much talking to yourself about it. So it's not like, oh, yeah, here, oh, yeah, I'm really in that thought. Oh, I'm always getting into that thought. And shit, I just can't come back to the object. And it's just like everything I do. And I'm just so fat. Thing and so hungry. And just, it's just, so the language is going to sound a little bit like, oh, mm hmm, yeah, oh, uh huh, oh, come back, uh huh, mm hmm, oh, mm hmm. A little bit like that. Do we do the same with physical sensations? Same with physical sensations. You feel that you need to to move your leg, for example, to try to maintain the same position. Even sit still. <laughs> sit still, and watch your mind. And this is hard for those of you who are yoga practitioners. First of all, to leave your breath alone, and then to actually leave sensations in your body alone, because yogis are like addicted to sensation. Yeah? They're just... Oh. Every time you feel something, you have to, like, do something with it. You know? And if you, I always thought it would be great to do, like, a film where you film a room of yogis practicing, or just one, uh, and then you turn up the speed, and it would be, like... And you could set, like, Parisian electronic dance music to it, you know? So, when a sensation arises, you're leaving it alone. And you're learning how to open to the feeling, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And just let it unfold. And watch that between the feeling and what you want to do with it, there's a lot of space there. And you're trying to aim for that space. 
And, I mean, if things are happening where your leg is falling asleep every time you sit, I mean, you want to adjust your posture a little bit. But when you're sitting for 20 or 30 minutes every day, um, things will happen. And not just the painful things, but cool things happen too. You know, hallucinating, all kinds of special things where you think, oh my God, I'm really spiritual. (laughs) And like, same thing, you just leave that stuff alone. So, if you get stuck, send me an email. And I'm happy to support you so that you practice every day. As long as the emails are this short. (laughs) Four sentences. Not David Foster Wallace sentences. (laughs) No footnotes. Just short, to the point. Any other questions, thoughts, concerns? Is there an optimal time limit when you should be trying to establish a practice? In the morning, the mind is clear and the body is stiff and in the evening the mind is insane and uh, the body is really pliable so um, you choose (laughs) because uh, I used to have a very formal practice but because I have a little boy I just sort of sit whenever I can and um, so it's not you know but if you have a schedule where you can actually have a time every day, I, I recommend doing that. Yeah. Maybe some of you, like between clients or something, there's a time where you could sit. Um, yeah. Free, a genius, and embarrassment. So, don't get your hopes up. Don't set yourself up. What we're practicing is being where we are. Being where we are. Not trying to get somewhere. We chant the Heart Sutra every week. There is no attainment. And then the mind right away goes, okay, well, I'm going to not attain. (laughs) And that's why the next sentence is, and no non-attainment. Don't go forwards. Don't go backwards. Don't be still. Don't close your eyes. Don't go inside yourself. And don't look around. Don't go outside. Don't be something. But don't try and not be something. Yellowstone National Park is not trying to be anything. And when you realize that, you are a dill plant. You're an airplane, you're ink on a page, you're these words. And when we stand up, if Ryan falls, you will go help him, because it's one body. There's nothing for you to attain. And that's called nirvana, which means in English to blow out or to extinguish. Well, what's getting extinguished? Not you and your uniqueness, because you can't extinguish blue. Sarah's eyes, blue, which are blue. Are your earrings diamonds? 
You can't extinguish them. Yeah? What color are your eyes, Ronit? Green. Your eyes are green. You don't want to extinguish that. Some people think that, oh, I'm going to be extinguished. And then, like, I won't have menopause anymore, and then I'll be free. You know? But actually, to see that you're free now. And nirvana means to extinguish the self-image that keeps us bound up and unable to serve. And that's why we practice. And the Dharma, the teachings, which are not these books. Don't be don't think this is the Dharma. This is just a book. The Dharma is just what you can observe. That's the teaching. And this book is just as valuable as a dill plant. And the Sangha community. And don't think that the community is just this thing here on Tuesday nights, because the community includes everything, including um, Frank Gehry and the 7-Eleven. And um, the Buddha. And don't confuse the Buddha as Gotama. The Buddha is your own freedom. That's their just as Yellowstone National Park and Algonquin Park and Tomogamy and Parkdale are happening. So let's finish chanting.